The podcast that never needs spoiler alerts because it takes you back in time to relive the nostalgia of classic TV shows and films that you've probably already seen. I'm your host, Kiara, and each week I'll dive into the archives to bring you my take on movies and TV shows from at least 20 years ago. From cult classics to forgotten gems, I'll review them all and give my honest opinion on their impact and whether or not they still hold up today. Join me as we revisit the iconic characters, memorable moments, and timeless themes that made these shows and films so special. So take a break from adulting and get ready for a trip down memory lane with Sup Media Reviews. What's up, Home Slices? Thanks so much for tuning into Sup Media Reviews. I'm Kiara, and today I'm going to be reviewing the 1999 film, The Sandlot. The movie features Tom Geary as Scotty Smalls, Art LaFleur as the babe, and James Earl Jones as Mr. Myrtle. This movie is a classic for a lot of folks my age, but I have a confession to make. I can only recall watching this movie all the way through once in my childhood. To be honest, I'm more so doing this for the culture than doing it for myself. So we're going to explore why this movie is such a hit with us young millennials and we'll get into it. So here are a few fun facts about the movie. The older and younger Benny are played by real life brothers, Pablo and Mike Vitar. So in the movie, they show this particular kid, Benny, as a child and as an adult. And the two actors are actually brothers and they do look a lot alike. The second fun fact is that after the kids chew tobacco in the movie, they fall ill. And the vomit that was used in the ride scene was made from split pea soup, baked beans, oatmeal, a little water, and some movie jail. Y'all, what is movie jail? (laughs) I don't know what that is. What is movie jail? The heck is that? They use paint guns to discharge the vomit and they actually nailed a few people in real life by accident. The chewing tobacco was made from beef jerky and licorice. Ew, they had the actors chew beef jerky and licorice to stand in for the dip? Why not just beef jerky? Why licorice? Oh, gross. Y'all, licorice is probably one of the worst tasting things on the planet. 
Apparently, some of the kids actually became sick filming the ride scene. And if you give them licorice beforehand, I understand why. The final fun fact is that in order to establish the close bond between Smalls and Benny, who are kind of like the two main characters, the director had Tom Geary and Mike Vitar meet and rehearse together weeks before the rest of the kids show up to film. It worked so well that the other kids genuinely believed that the two actors had been friends for a long time. To this day, Tom Geary and Mike Vitar remain friends and kept in touch with each other since the filming for this movie ended. So some real life friendships form from this movie. So that's pretty cool. If you want to check out The Sandlot, you can watch it on Stars as of the recording of this episode. So like I said earlier, I don't really have a close personal connection to this film. I just know that for a lot of people my age, this movie is like at the top of their list for like classic childhood films. So I just know a lot of people who have a closeness to this movie and thought it would be like a cool one to review with like some fresh eyes. I also want to say James Earl Jones is the goat. He is the best, has an amazing voice. Some of you know him as Mufasa. Some of you know him as Darth Vader. He's a really good actor. And if you've ever seen pictures of him from when he was younger, I know he was tearing the ladies down because he looked. Y'all know James Earl Jones is like probably 50, 60 year old plus, you know, James Earl Jones. Find a picture of him and look up a picture of him from when he was young. That man, he was taking the ladies down. I know he was such a handsome man. Okay. Also, as a child, I had a huge crush on Brandon Quentin Adams. He is the actor who played Kenny, the only black character <laughs> in the Sandlot. And I just thought he was so cute when he was a child and when I was a child. Still a good looking guy today. And also, I really love a good movie about friendship and simpler times. Like, also the movie explores like neighborhood lore, which I think is pretty cool, being afraid of dogs, etc. And so I'm excited to share my perspective on this movie and watch it with fresh eyes. So let's chat. So the movie opens and we see a man walking around an empty baseball stadium and he enters the press box. The narrator of the film starts talking about Babe Ruth in the 1932 game where apparently he called where he was going to hit a home run. And that's like a major moment in baseball. I'm not a huge baseball fan. However, I did win tickets to the home run derby at the all-star game this year. So I'm actually excited to go see that baseball. I feel like it's actually one of the games that it's fun to go to and actually watch in person. I don't really understand the game, but just the energy of being there, the concession foods, the like just hanging out and chilling and like all the other little entertainment that they do between innings or whatever, I think is like super cute. So I'll be at the home run derby this year, y'all. So that's fun. So back to the movie, the narrator says that in 1962, some kid named Benjamin Franklin Rodriguez moved. <laughs> he met a kid named Benjamin Franklin Rodriguez. It's a funny name. It really is funny. You could tell someone was trying to be extra patriotic when naming this child. <laughs> but he mentions that Benjamin Franklin Rodriguez, who we later know as Benny, taught the narrator baseball and basically became his best friend. So in the next scene, there's some kids playing baseball. And apparently when someone is stuck between bases, it's called being in a pickle. I 
I'm wondering, is that the origin of where if someone says you're in a pickle means or did that happen first and baseball just adopted it? I don't know, y'all. I don't know nothing about baseball. But anyways, we see that the main character, whose name is Scotty Smalls and who is also narrating the movie, moved into the neighborhood two weeks before school let out. So this boy don't have no friends. The neighborhood is actually lovely. Like he kind of lives in like a cul-de-sac little area. This neighborhood is really nice. And again, this movie is taking place in 1962. So keep that in mind. So we find out that he's a fifth grader who has no friends before the summer. Um, his dad passed away and he has a new stepfather. And he's in this awkward space with his stepfather. He doesn't know if he should call him dad or by his first name, which is Bill. We see that Bill's a huge baseball fan and he has his own kind of trophy room dedicated to baseball memorabilia. And we see there is a ball that's in like this really important spot on this really important stand in the room and it's signed by Babe Ruth. So Bill promises to teach Scotty catch. And so Scotty is I actually found him a little bit annoying in this <laughs> in this movie. He was a really insecure child who just wanted to be a part of something and just had a hard time interacting with people. So he follows the neighborhood kids to the sandlot and he saw that they really played like a never ending game of baseball. There was only eight of them, so they didn't have a full team. And he just wanted to like hang out with them and be their ninth man and hang out in the outfield. And so while he's there kind of stalking them in plain sight, he notices some commotion from the other side of the fence and a whole bunch of barking. And so the ball gets hit his way and he's scared and he's just really insecure. He doesn't want to embarrass himself. And so he grabs the ball while the monster on the other side of the fence is watching and the other kids laugh when he can't throw the ball. He like tries to throw the ball and it doesn't really work out for him. I don't understand how you don't know how to throw a ball at this age. Throwing is just something you kind of naturally learn. You don't necessarily have to have someone teach you to do it. Throwing like balls of paper into the trash can, like you could learn how to throw. Like, I feel like they're making it seem like because he doesn't have a father or he didn't have a father figure until his stepfather came along that he doesn't know how to throw a ball. I just feel like it's very strange that he would not be able to throw something when that's like a normal skill that people have <laughs> or that they attain over time. I just think that's really, really strange. But anyway, he ends up embarrassing himself and he runs away. So it's before bed and we see Scotty who is like a low-key tinkerer and that tinkerer he has these erector sets that he uses and his mom comes in and is basically asking him why aren't you got no friends and he just thinks he's weird and people don't like him and his mom is like you need to be out there you need to get into some trouble you need to make some memories and you need to like you know find you a crew to get into trouble with and I'm like mm, how luxurious to have a a white mama tell you to get into trouble knowing that nothing bad will happen to you I guess so that's fun so he is down on himself and he feels like he's not good at anything. And he's just like a sad sack. And I just find him to be a little bit annoying. I don't know. His personality bothers me a little bit at this point in the story. It doesn't always stay that way for me. So it's the next day and the kid Scotty 
also known as Smalls, musters up the courage to ask Bill to teach him how to play catch. And so his mom has to chime in and say, like, can't you spare like 30 minutes and stop doing what you're doing to teach him how to play catch? And his stepdad does. And (laughs) Scotty's really bad at it. Scotty doesn't want to throw the ball, so he walks it over to his stepdad. And when he does attempt to throw the ball, it looks really bad. He can't catch the ball. And when his stepfather tells him to keep his eye on the ball, he ends up basically catching the ball with his eye and ends up getting a black eye. And funnily enough, Bill takes a huge raw steak and puts it on his eye and his eye gets bruised. And yeah, I understand that back in the day, people put meat on your eye, but a raw steak you trying to get E. coli in your eye? What the heck? I'm so glad we know more about bacteria these days. <laughs> a raw steak on the eye? Ugh, come on. So next up, we see that Scotty gets approached by Benny and he gets invited to come to the game, but he's really like down on himself. So he doesn't want to go. So Benny was basically like, no excuses. I have a new glove for you or you can use my old glove. Let's go. So Scotty tells his mom that he's leaving and they head to like a local drugstore where the kids hang out. And so Scotty gets introduced to all of the kids and he didn't know who Babe Ruth was, the great Bambino. So he lied and told them that he knew who the great Bambino was, but he had no idea. So we get introduced to the kids. There's Timmy and Tommy, who are brothers. There is Mike, who is called Squints, a little kid with glasses. There's Tan child named Alan, but they call him Yeah Yeah. There's a taller kid named Bertram. There's Kenny, who is the black kid. And then there's Hamilton, who they call Ham, who was like a chubby, freckle-faced, redhead kid. So after each one of them gets introduced, they all spit, which is gross. And I was trying to take down all of their names during this scene. So I had to keep like pausing and rewinding it and seeing them spit over and over again was gross. <laughs> like, I understand this is a show or a movie rather about fifth, like, and I'm assuming sixth grade boys. The younger brother might have been even younger than that. So I understand that boys are gross, but that scene for whatever, I was like, mm, I can't, <laughs> I can't do it. So it's 9am. Again, this is summertime. And the rest of them are kind of mad that Benny has invited this kid to join them. They recently lost a kid because he moved away. So the boys are being really mean about having someone who obviously can't play baseball be a part of their team because previously Scotty couldn't catch the ball that came his way and he couldn't throw it to back to them either. So yeah, they don't want him on the team. They call him an L7 weenie and they're not quiet about it. Scotty can hear all of this and Scotty had a little bit more patience than I would have because I would have been fighting an L7 weenie. Yeah, nobody calls me that. But Benny has a goal that he's trying to reach. He needs practice and he needs a full team so that he can rotate the positions. And even though Scotty is no good and knows nothing about baseball, he can learn. 
So Benny not only has the determination of a young burgeoning athlete, he also has uh, maturity beyond his years. <laughs> so he, you know, takes a liking to Scotty. And yeah, like he said earlier in the movie, they eventually become good friends. So they get ready to start playing the game. Benny sends a ball his way and Scotty obviously doesn't catch it or throw it back either. Scotty runs it back over to the pitcher who is Kenny. So Scotty tries to leave because he feels really embarrassed about not being good at baseball. And Benny is saying like, you're too in your head. Like you are not having fun. Okay. And that's part of your problem. We also find out that Scotty is like a good student and he's really weird about it. So I guess he's trying to say that he was a nerd. doesn't really come up again, but Benny encourages him to stay and gives him some tips. He asks him to throw the ball like he has a paper route and to catch the ball by just putting his glove in the air. So Benny tries again to help Scotty and all of the other kids are like, oh my gosh, like this again, like we're going to be out here forever because this boy does not know how to play. Uh, he doesn't know how to throw or catch. And so Benny hits the ball to him and it lands right in Scotty's open glove. And then he throws it with no problem. So now the other kids have a little faith in him, but across the fence, that scary dog is worrying Scotty. And they have this like large animatronic dog shadow that you can see beyond the fence. And it's freaking hilarious, y'all. That's one of the funniest parts of this movie is that horrible animatronic dog. I think it's freaking hilarious. It's like the best thing <laughs> about the movie. The dog is so bad. So Benny lets Smalls keep his baseball glove and he already has a nickname. So Scotty's nickname is Smalls. So he feels hopeful. He now has eight potential new friends and an activity to do during the summer. So Benny even gives Scotty his hat. And so just... There is no real reason or explanation for why Benny took to Scotty this way. Maybe he was just like a nice kid or maybe he just really needed a ninth person. <laughs> they never really explained, but Benny does appear to be a little bit older than the other kids. I don't know. They never really explained why Benny took such a liking to Scotty. Like, I wish they did. Anyways... Small starts list of like things to learn about baseball. And the first one is to figure out who the great Bambino is. And of course he never does. And we see that happen later in the movie. So it's the next day and they're playing in the sandlot and Ham is trying to call his ball like where it's going to land, but it's not working. So Kenny's the pitcher. He pitches to Ham and Ham hits it over the fence. And instead of being happy, everybody is real mad. And apparently they only play with one ball. Now, I know this is 1962. Uh, later on, we find out that the balls cost 98 cents. But it's like, y'all can find 98 cents in the couch cushions. Why don't y'all have like at least two or three balls to play with in the event that something like this happens? <laughs> Especially considering that no ball has ever been retrieved from the other side of the fence. Like, I know y'all are children, but it doesn't take that much common sense to have multiple balls. But, you know, you got to do what you got to do when you're a kid. And when you don't have access to money, I guess you just hold on to the one ball for as long as you can. So Scotty, unfortunately, does not know or remember. Now, 
I told you all twice that Scotty was scared because he heard all the ruckus that was going on behind the fence when he was at the sandlot previously. Somehow he magically forgets all of that and is like, oh, y'all, I'm gonna climb this fence and go get the ball. And the kids have to run after him and say, no. And they're like, hey, get down from there. Like, we never gonna see that ball again because of the beast. And Scotty's like, who is the beast? And it's like, Scotty. You literally got scared twice from this dog on the other side of the fence. How quickly have you forgotten that there's a ginormous dog on the other side of it? That part didn't make sense to me. Benny says that he should peek through the fence and see for himself. And he sees like a huge paw, an animatronic paw. Again, very hilarious. And that part does not hold up. That animatronic dog is so funny, y'all. So they decide that it's time to do what they call a camp out, which is a sleepover, to let Smalls know about the local legend of the beast. So it's camp out time and Smalls is late and he ends up getting offered a s'more and he does not know what that is. Smalls, I'm trying to figure out why Smalls doesn't know anything. <laughs> If you don't know who Babe Ruth is because you don't follow baseball, like, cool, I guess that makes sense to me. But you are a fifth grader and you don't know what a s'more is. And this is the first time we hear Ham say, you're killing me, Smalls, which is a very popular line that I've heard many times before. And I think that I'm just now or when I was researching for this movie, that's the first time I made the connection to the Sandlot. So if you've ever heard the phrase, you're killing me, Smalls, it actually comes from the Sandlot. So basically he teaches him how to make a s'more and Scotty gets his first exposure to the marshmallowy, chocolatey goodness of a s'more. So he's learning and growing every day and his friends are teaching him new things, including baseball and how to make s'mores. So, you know, this is a tale about friendship. Oh, also... In order to make s'mores, you have to toast marshmallows, which includes lighting a fire. The fire that they use to toast the marshmallow is from a bunch of candles that seem to all kind of be stuck together. Now, these kids are having a camp out in a treehouse, a lovely treehouse. It's very big. It's able to fit nine boys in it with no problem. Like this is a very sturdy tree and this is a very sturdy treehouse. I always wanted a treehouse as a kid. <sighs> I wonder if my kids will want a treehouse. I might build my future kids a treehouse just to use it myself. <laughs> I don't know. Anyways, they're inside the treehouse and having a treehouse with fifth grade kids using fire sounds like a freaking nightmare. Can you all imagine what would happen if that went wrong? Like, come on, y'all. You can't be using candles in the treehouse now. So they quiet down and... Squints tells the legend of the beast. There was a place called Myrtle's Acres 20 years ago. Mr. Myrtle was the junkyard or is a junkyard owner. And he was tired of people coming in and stealing stuff from him. So Mr. Myrtle bought a puppy as his junkyard dog and fed his dog huge slabs of beef so that it could grow big and strong and protect the junkyard. <laughs> Everyone who entered the junkyard was killed and the cops got reports on 173 missing thieves. So the police came and Squints claimed that the police 
chief, I think at that time was like his great, great grandfather or something like that. And I'm assuming that's how he's depicting the way the story was passed down to him. They built a special pole that the dog had to be chained up to under the house forever. And so Mr. Myrtle basically had to turn or was required to turn his place into a fortress so that the dog couldn't get out and like eat a child or, or whatever. And there is another part of the legend that a child went missing and the dog ate it. So Smalls doesn't believe the story. But interestingly enough, the treehouse overlooks the backyard into Mr. Myrtle's junkyard and he gets like a little bit of a glimpse of the dog and so when he does that I think he decides to believe the tale. So yeah apparently more than 150 baseballs have gone over the fence and they never see them again. So now Smalls is a believer. He's up to date on the local lore and <laughs> he believes in the tale of the beast. So now here is the worst scene in the movie. <laughs> this next part of the movie is the worst scene in the movie. And I, I'll talk to you all later about why I don't like it. So Squints, again, little nerdy kid with glasses, sees an older girl that he likes named Wendy Peppercorn. There's a scene in the movie where the camera is like looking at her butt as if like we're seeing it through the point of view of squints. And I was like, hmm, for this to be like a young girl, the camera focused on her butt a little too long for me, like personally, but squints doesn't like being teased about liking Wendy Peppercorn. And this particular day, it's like too hot out and they don't want to play baseball because they're going to get dehydrated. It's just going to be too uncomfortable. And so Benny, of course, because he's out here and he has a goal of being like a really good baseball player, is trying to get everybody to like focus and play baseball. And he's like, you know, let's take a vote. If you want to be a can't hack it panty waist, then raise your hand and everyone raises their hand. They really don't want to play out in the heat. And this is actually one of the wisest decisions that was made in this movie. Dehydration and heat stroke are for real, for real, especially for small children. And they weren't drinking water. They were drinking soda, which is not as hydrating as water. So I feel like they made a really smart choice by not deciding to play baseball in this hot weather. Y'all, who says panty waste? <laughs> I understand this was in the 60s. I low-key don't even know what panty waste means, but I'm assuming it means like you're useless. And I feel like if I call somebody that, they would be so offended, <laughs> even if they didn't really know what I was talking about. But a panty waste, that's like a real insult. So anyway, when they all vote, to not play ball, they decide to go to the pool to look at the girls, but they're really there to see Wendy. They really admire this girl. I guess she's a cute girl. Well, in the 1960s, I guess she was cute. Again, because I'm not an adolescent boy, I didn't understand what was so mesmerizing about her. I think just the fact that she was older and had passed puberty, they were just really into her. So Ham does a cannonball and splashes some girls. They're hanging out at the pool. And this movie never tells us how old Wendy is supposed to be, but she's there as a lifeguard. So she's actually working during the summer. So Wendy might be 16-ish, maybe 15. So Squints is desperate. First off, Squints is swimming with glasses. First off, who does that? Like, 
who does that? Squints is desperate and is just too overwhelmed by Wendy's beauty that he decides to go to the deep end of the pool when he knows that he can't swim so that he could be rescued by Wendy. So he eventually gets pulled out of the pool and she starts performing mouth to mouth on him and the other pool goers are watching. And so while the boys are like saying like, you know, don't die squints, he ends up smiling. And the next time Wendy goes up to give him the rescue breaths, he kisses her. And so she throws him and all of his friends out of the pool and they run and leave. We find out that Squints has spent years planning that. And I feel like they spent way too much time talking about this kiss, especially because it was non-consensual. <laughs> now, I don't consider myself to be the most woke person and I understand that this movie came out in the early 90s and that the movie was set in the early 60s. So I don't want to not have that in the back of my mind, but it was non-consensual. It was inappropriate. I found it to be quite gross. And instead of the writers of the film depicting it in that manner, they went the opposite direction. And I hate it. I hate the direction that they went with this because they basically made it seem like Wendy liked it. And we find out later on what their future was. And I'm like, mm -mm, mm -mm, no, I find this to be the most inappropriate scene in the movie thus far. And this little boy assaulted her and did it under false pretenses, faked a drowning to do it. It's morally wrong. <laughs> And it's inappropriate. And it's the worst scene of the movie, in my opinion. And I'm sorry if that offends you if you're like a diehard Sandlot fan, but that part really does not hold up for me. So in the next scene, it's July 4th. And this is the one time of the year that the boys do a night game because the fireworks that light up in the air actually light up the area enough for them to be able to see at night. And so we see that Benny has a vision of being a pro baseball player. But for the other kids, it's just a game. They're just hanging out during the summer or whatever. They're like so mesmerized by the fireworks. But Benny is like rounding the bases after hitting a home run or whatever. And so we see how serious Benny is taking this while the other kids are just like having a good time. So it's a new day and Benny gets in a baseball pickle where he's going between two bases and he outsmarts them or whatever. And I guess this is to show how good his skills are. And we see some kids come through on bikes and they're wearing like baseball jackets or whatever. And they are the rivals to like the Sandlot crew. So the leader of the rival kids is called Phillips. And basically he says like, Benny, you're too good to be playing with these Sandlot misfits. Okay, you won't need to get with a real team. And so Phillips and Ham start exchanging insults and the insults are funny. These are like 1962 insults. Like you mix your Wheaties with your mom's toe jam or like you play ball like a girl. Also, that does not age well. <laughs> But Phillips gets so mad at that insult that he challenges them to a game the next day. And so on the next day when the game happens, we see that Ham is talking crap as like the umpire. Is he the umpire? 
I think he's the umpire, y'all. Again, I don't know baseball. But while the other team is up to bat, he's talking crap to them and distracting them and getting them to miss the balls that get pitched to them. So eventually the other team is up to bat. The Sandlot crew is up to bat and they do really well. Ham gets up to the bat and hits it out of the park. And basically all of the kids who are a part of the Sandlot crew hit the balls each and every one of them, including small. So like small skills are improving as well. So yeah, Benny is up to bat and he hits the ball really far and he wins in the game. I'm thinking he got a grand slam and that the bases were loaded. Y'all, again, I don't know baseball. I think it's a grand slam or that's a breakfast meal at Denny's. I don't know. Maybe it's both. So anyways, the kids feel really good about winning this game. So they decide to go to a carnival that night and celebrate. So Benny is like, I'm going to treat everybody to carnival tickets, which is super sweet. Okay. And so one of the kids, Bertram, brings chewing tobacco and another moment where the phrase, you're killing me, Smalls, comes up again is because... Smalls does not know what chewing tobacco is. Now that I'm not going to be mad at him on. Little kids do not need to know what chewing tobacco is. But I'm assuming that because baseball, (laughs) people who play baseball were really into chewing tobacco. That's why the kids know about it. So Bertram was able to get his hand on some and the kids dig in and they all put it in their mouths. And y'all, unfortunately, they get on a ride. Oh, first off, before they get on the ride, one of the kids claims that the chewing tobacco is supposed to give baseball players energy. Is that what they used it for? I don't know why anyone would use chewing tobacco or cigarettes, really. But is there I don't understand how it gives people energy. I actually don't know what type of reaction your body gets. Is it just because it's addictive because it's Tobacco? I don't know. I don't know. But I felt surprised to hear him say they use it for energy. I thought they just use it to look cool or something. I would look it up, but I don't care. So (laughs) the kids get on like a spinning carnival ride with the dips in their mouths. And at first they're having a good time, but the chewing tobacco actually makes them feel very sick. And so the kids start to throw up and they spit out the tobacco and they vomit all over the ride and all over themselves and it is gross and disgusting and the one thing that I didn't really like I told you all earlier what the vomit was actually made out of like the whole movie magic part of it but all of their vomit was the same color and I'm assuming they were okay with that because I'm guessing like the tobacco discolored their vomit but if different people throw up it's not gonna be the same hue if one person throws up multiple times it probably won't be the same hue they could have done a little work with the coloring or whatever but it's not a big deal it was a disgusting scene but it was very funny and I'm assuming the kids never tried dip again and also chewing tobacco is ridiculously harmful and dangerous so I hope that no one would actually use chewing tobacco anymore. I don't know how many people use it anymore. I only know of one person who dips, is what they call it, and it's freaking gross. They like keep a cup on them so they can spit out the tobacco juice. Gross, oh yuck, disgusting, okay. 
So it's the next day and we see that Bill, who is Scotty's stepdad, is leaving to go on a business trip to Chicago for a week. And he tells Smalls, like, you're in charge. You're the man of the house. Be a good boy while I'm gone. And he says, like, when I come back, we can try catch again. So Bill, I'm assuming, does not know that Smalls has basically been playing catch with his friends all summer. So this is a lesson for you parents out there. If you don't teach your children, they'll learn it from somewhere, okay? So we learned that they start foreshadowing that the main conflict of the story is about to come up. They're about to get in the biggest pickle ever. But there was an omen first. And so they're at the sandlot and Benny hits the ball so hard that it falls apart. And because they only play with one ball, they can't play anymore. And again, balls cost 98 cents. So Smalls volunteers the autographed Babe Ruth ball from his stepdad's collection to be the ball that they play with. Again, because he does not know who Babe Ruth is, he does not understand the significance of this ball. So he, I mean, even if you don't know who Babe Ruth is, knowing that it's in a trophy room and it's in a place of respect in the trophy room, you should surmise that this ball is maybe a little too important to play with in a game. But Smalls, I think, is just so eager to, I guess, save the day and do something nice for his friends. And like, because he's finally a part of something, like a part of a little friend group, that all of that common sense just kind of goes out of the window. So yeah, he doesn't want to let the crew down. So Smalls gets, <laughs> gets the ball from his dad's trophy room. He brings it back. And because it's his ball, he gets to hit it first. And so the pitcher throws him the ball and on the second try, he hits it and it goes over the fence and Smalls is terrified. Like he's supposed to be running the bases, but the kids don't understand why like Scotty is coming across as traumatized instead of running the bases. And so he's like, my stepdad is going to kill me. We have to get the ball back. And like the ball is really important to my stepdad. I thought we would just play with it and I would put it back. And some lady named Baby Ruth Ruth signed it and gave it to him. And the kids are like, Babe Ruth, are you kidding? And they start rattling off Babe Ruth's names, the great Bambino, the Titan of Titan of something, the Sultan of Silk or something like that. I don't know. Apparently Babe Ruth had a bunch of nicknames, whatever, whatever. So for the first time, Smalls is making the connection between the great Bambino and Babe Ruth. And he feels really silly about not realizing it sooner, but he's overwhelmingly scared because that ball means something to Bill. And because he knocked it over the fence and no balls have ever made it back from over the fence, he knows that he is toast. Okay. So this becomes the main conflict of the story. They need to get this ball back and they have to get it back before they never see it again. So they see that the beast grabs the ball from the other side of the fence and they basically are like, hey, you screwed. Okay. So Smalls, with his new knowledge that Babe Ruth is the great Bambino and now finding out that the ball is actually worth a lot of money, like not only is it like your stepdad's collectible item, it is also worth <laughs> a lot of money. Yeah, they're like, we need a plan. So Benny is like, y'all, we finna find some bottles and cans and we're gonna cash them in, I guess at like the recycling center and get 98 cents. 
So Scotty needs to figure out when his stepdad is coming home. And so they end up forging this duplicate ball so that Scotty's mom doesn't know that it's missing. And when Scotty is placing the duplicate ball on the little stand, he almost gets caught by his mom. And his mom tells him the story of the ball. And apparently Bill's dad gave it to him. And his mom was like, you know, maybe he'll pass down the ball to you someday. And so Scotty is feeling even worse now because not only is this a piece of baseball history, it is also like a special memento for Bill. And I'm assuming Bill's dad is no longer alive based on the way that they were kind of talking about it. So yeah, Scotty already felt bad because of the significance of the ball, but he was mostly ashamed that even his mom knew who Babe Ruth was and that he didn't. And it's like, Scotty, that's not what you were supposed to take from this, okay? <laughs> that's not what you were supposed to take from this situation. So now it's time for planning and scheming. I'm going to try to go through this as quickly as possible. The brainstorming, coming up with ideas. The first idea is, can we just knock on the door and go ask Mr. Myrtle for it? Squint says no, because he's mean. And the last kid who went over there got eaten because Mr. Myrtle sicked him on the kid. And so we see that the beast is like throwing the ball, tearing it up or whatever. And they start like busting up the fence, trying to use objects to grab the ball. And with each attempt, it becomes a little more and more sophisticated. And the beast always intercepts the ball every time they try to get it. And it always scares the crap out of them. So they do this really iterative process. And I've always been amazed at how children in movies are depicted as like really smart and intuitive and have a lot of ingenuity. And as a child, I was like, I feel like I'm not this smart. <laughs> Like I was a smart kid and I had like decent problem solving skills with these kids. Once they start getting to like the later iterative models of trying to get this ball back, like the devices they were using to get the ball back, I feel like they were like high school level calculations <laughs> that these kids were doing to try to get this ball back. So the beast keeps destroying all of their makeshift tools. At first it was just a stick and then it was a bowl, a bowl on a stick so they could drag the ball back. But the beast just intercepts them the whole time. And the ball keeps getting more and more disfigured. It has slobber all over it. It's getting ripped and all that stuff. So they even try like getting to it from the air by using suction from vacuum cleaners. But then the beast grabs the suction hose and destroys it and pinch the suction hose shut so that the vacuums end up shorting out and I'm like why didn't the kids just turn the vacuums off like they heard that it was pinched and that like something was wrong with them why didn't they just turn them off but of course they didn't think of that so the vacuum cleaners end up blowing up and almost destroying the wonderful treehouse so the last kid to leave the treehouse after this explosion is Timmy and he's covered in dust and he's like, we need an airborne attack. So they decide to use a pulley system to lower a kid over the fence. The kid that's being lowered is yeah, yeah. And like I said, these kids are little engineers. They have ham 
who is using some type of like bicycle pedals to control the slack in the rope. And Yaya ends up grabbing the ball, but then the beast is like right in his face and they all have, they panic and they have to lift him out of that area. And some of the pulley stuff ends up going wrong. And Yaya is so scared, he actually drops the ball. In their final attempt, they use parts of Scotty's erector set. Again, remember Scotty is like a little bit handy and plays with and tinkers with erector sets or whatever. And he put together a little roving machine that's remote controlled that has a catapult on it. And so the idea is to use the catapult to throw the ball over the fence. I actually think this was like a decent idea because if you don't care about your erector sets and the ball is really what you care about, having a disposable device to return the ball back to you is actually a really good idea. Like, again, these kids are very smart. They're like wise beyond their years or whatever. So for all intents and purposes, this plan actually works and they launch the catapult. But unfortunately, the beast comes up and grabs the ball out of the air and destroys their hope. And yeah, they're defeated. Also, in these scenes, this robo dog, this animatronic dog is freaking hilarious. It looks horrible. It's so bad. <laughs> I feel like even for 1993, it's a little bad. It's very funny. So the beast destroys the erector set. He scares the kids some more. And Smalls is so defeated and so sad. And I actually feel really bad for him. He was like, you know, I was in a good space with Bill. We were, you know, building a rapport, building a relationship. And he starts having nightmares about what's going to happen to him when Bill comes back from being out of town. But Benny has a weird dream about Babe Ruth. And Babe Ruth suggests that they just hop over the fence and get the ball. And Babe basically gives him a lesson and taking big chances and that the omen about him hitting that ball and it falling apart was actually a good sign and that he needs to take some risk or whatever. And <laughs> Babe Ruth sees a picture or a baseball card. I believe it's a signed baseball card of Hank Aaron, a black baseball player. Apparently there is some significance to this. I believe Hank Aaron broke one of Babe Ruth's records. So you know, again, I don't care enough to 100% look it up. But one of the things that Babe Ruth says to him in this dream is that heroes get remembered, but legends never die. So it's the next day. And with the inspiration that he gets from Babe Ruth, he decides to put on his PF flyers and take Babe Ruth's advice to just hop in and get the ball. The kids try to discourage him from doing it, but Benny has to. So he jumps the fence and the beast, who is now a real and not an animatronic dog, <laughs> has the ball in his mouth. It is a St. Bernard that has not been neutered. <laughs> I'll say that. And y'all, I'm trying to figure this out because I feel like it is a tool to tell the story to make the dog come across as scarier before they actually physically interact with the dog. So the animatronic dog, again, is just freaking horrible. It was horror. The animatronic dog was horrible to look at. So I'm trying to see if the intent was for the animatronic dog to be bigger and scarier than the real dog to show like the power of their imaginations and making this dog like bigger and scarier than they actually thought it was. But again, the animatronic dog was so bad. So 
I wish they wouldn't have <laughs> done that. <laughs> it was so bad, y'all. So anyways, I'm going to try to sum this up really quickly, but Benny bends down, picks up the ball, and he runs out of the fence. And unfortunately for Benny, the beast breaks the chain that he was on and he proceeds to get chased all over town and ends up saying a curse word once he sees that the dog actually hopped over the fence and chased him. So a chase scene ensues. They're going all over the town. Benny is hightailing it, but they run through a Founders Day picnic. A large cake gets destroyed. They run through the pool area and they meet back up at the sandlot and so Benny is running and the beast isn't far behind the beast almost gets Benny he bites at his shirt and rips it but Benny jumps over the fence into the junkyard and the beast just like pummels his way through the fence and because the fence has endured some abuse the fence actually falls on top of the dog so the dog is hurt and in the most redeeming thing that Scotty has done in this entire film he tries to lift the fence and the other boys are like no we're not lifting the fence for this monster and Benny comes over and helps Scotty to lift off the fence and the dog, you know, approaches Scotty and licks him in the face like a grateful dog. And then the boys follow the dog to like this little ball pit where the beast has been watching over all the lost balls that have come over the fence. So they knock on the door to the house of Mr. Myrtle and James Earl Jones, who plays Mr. Myrtle in this character, is a blind older man who tells them that the dog's name is actually Hercules. He says, like, y'all are the first people to ever get the best of Hercules. But like, if y'all would have knocked and asked, I would have got the ball for you. And they explain that the ball actually was signed for Babe Ruth. And that's why they had tried so hard to get the ball back. And Mr. Myrtle was like, was that y'all making all that racket? And I was like, you heard these little kids messing stuff up and you uh, <laughs> didn't ask no questions till now. Like, <laughs> I don't know y'all. I just don't know. So anyways, Mr. Myrtle invites Benny and Scotty in and they never mentioned that they destroyed this man's fence I didn't like that like okay you can talk about this ball and you can tell us like hey your dog got hit by the fence maybe you need to take him to the vet they ain't say nothing like that they just basically said hey like we had to get over here so we can get this ball and we just wanted to let you know and so Mr. Myrtle finds out the story behind the ball and basically says Scotty you are toast and whenever they bring up Babe Ruth Mr. Myrtle calls him George and so Mr. Myrtle is like, you know what? I'm going to trade you this ball here, the torn up ball that was destroyed and signed by Babe Ruth. I'm going to trade that for this ball that was signed by like the 1927 Yankees. So it has a bunch of different player signatures on it, including Babe Ruth. It turns out that Mr. Myrtle played with Babe Ruth until he went blind. Now, Here's another problem I have with this movie. I don't 100% know the history of the integration of baseball, but I feel like Mr. Myrtle, who is played by a black man, probably didn't play on a team in the late 1920s with Babe Ruth. <laughs> and it's like, hmm, we're going to ignore the history of segregation in baseball for the sake of this story, I guess. Whatever. Again, this is also happening in 1962. So another you know, that's another consideration as well. So I looked it up 
and found out that baseball actually wasn't integrated until 1947. So this like, again, this is like historical fiction and I understand that, but they're really like erasing racism and baseball and I don't really care for that okay so that's not good <laughs> so apparently he ended up catching a ball to the head and that's how he lost his sight and I was like okay if that was racially motivated then that would be on par but <laughs> it would be on par for the times okay but of course they don't mention that y'all how can we ignore racism in baseball when the whole movie really is about baseball. I just, I can't. So they feel bad about accepting this ball from Mr. Myrtle. And he's like, look, we'll call it even if y'all come by once a week and talk about baseball with me. And they're like, okay, we're even. And so I guess they do that until Mr. Myrtle passes away or until they all move away from the neighborhood. So when Bill comes back from his trip, he takes the new ball and he is like kind of astonished by it or whatever. And he only grounds Scotty for a week and he feels closer to his stepdad. He has a better relationship with Bill. He's playing catch with him and doing a really good job. And we find out that the kids in the neighborhood grew up together. And even as people started moving away, they never replaced any of them. They talk about the irony of the dog being named Hercules when people low-key called Babe Ruth Hercules as well. Whatever. And <laughs> here's what happened to the rest of the crew. Yeah, yeah. Went to military school and became a pioneering developer of bungee jumping because of his whole experience with being lowered by a pulley into the beast's den. Bertram apparently got really into 1960s and no one ever saw him again. And I'm like, what the heck? Are they ass assuming that he was like a hippie or something? I don't really know. Did he die? What the heck happened to this man? Anyways, <laughs> Timmy and Tommy, the brothers, became an architect and a contractor who started out building playgrounds and tree houses, but then they made it big when they invented mini malls. Don't know the relevance of that. We see that Squint ended up marrying Wendy, the woman that he assaulted or the young lady that he assaulted at the pool, and that they have nine kids and they bought the local drugstore and still own it. Y'all... I'm grossed out by this detail of the movie, just personally. Hamilton became a professional wrestler called the Great Hambino. Kenny went on to play triple A ball, but didn't go to the majors. He's an entrepreneur and he coaches his kids' little league team. And then Hercules lived to be 199 years old in dog years. And Benny got a new nickname for his legendary chase with Hercules. And he got the nickname Benny the Jet, which is funny. Benny the Jet, Benny and the Jets. That's funny. I enjoyed that. But his nickname is Benny the Jet Rodriguez. And the name followed him all the way to Major League Baseball, where he plays with the LA Dodgers at the end of the movie. And so now they're all grown up. We see Benny as an adult stealing home and the crowd goes wild. And the guy who is narrating, who is in the press box that we saw at the beginning of the movie is actually Scotty. So these best friends are still kind of following each other around. So they're still best friends to the day and the movie ends and that's it, y'all. That's it for Sandlot. So yeah, at the end of every review, I answer two questions. Is the movie or TV show worth a rewatch and does it still hold up today? 
Now, for the first time since I've actually been doing this podcast, I actually might have to provide some conditional answers to these questions. If this movie was like a huge part of your childhood and you wouldn't mind reliving that, like go ahead and give it a rewatch. But since I don't feel that way about this film, I don't think I'd ever watch it again. As far as it holding up today, I'm going to say, uh, not really. Like if we take into consideration that this movie was based in the year 1962, some of the behavior might possibly be excusable for some people, but not really. And like, not for me. We all know that the integration of baseball was actually a huge freaking deal. And this movie kind of erases that history from this movie. So I don't like that. Additionally, I hate the pool scene with Squint and Wendy. Again, faking your own death to get a non-consensual kiss from an older girl is not okay. And the suggestion that a girl who was assaulted by a fifth grade boy would have liked it and went on to eventually marry and have nine kids with this little child is actually <laughs> like too much for me. Yeah, I just really don't like that. And y'all can say I'm too woke or whatever, but I just... Mm -mm. I just find it disgusting. It's gross. Anyways, I also didn't like how the camera focused too hard on her butt when she was walking away. Again, she's like an underage child. Like, I'm, it was too much. So the cast of the movie is actually surprisingly diverse despite like heavy levels of segregation in 1962. Like to have a Hispanic kid in your neighborhood as well as a... I believe he was a black kid, Kenny. His last name was De Nunez, which might suggest that he was Hispanic as well. But having them be in the same neighborhood as like the other kids in the story is actually like, I would say refreshing surprise for a movie that is set in 1962. Also, the animatronic dog does not hold up. I don't know if it held up when the movie came out. It was horrendous, okay? And again, I don't mean to crap all over this movie if it's your childhood fave, but in my honest opinion, this movie does not hold up. You're welcome to disagree and you're welcome to continue to hold this movie as a cherished childhood film with no heat and no judgment from me, okay? This is just me giving my opinion on my podcast on a movie that is not something that I actually hold near and dear to my heart. On Rotten Tomatoes, the critics gave The Sandlot 65% while regular folks gave it 89%. I more so side with the critics on this one for like the reasons I mentioned earlier. The movie wasn't all bad. Even though I feel like it doesn't hold up, I do recognize that there are good and positive themes in this movie. There were lessons about friendship, lessons about being welcome and inclusive, not believing everything you hear, not pretending to be something that you're not, and taking account for your actions. It's also really nice to be like transported back to a time where neighborhood kids hung out with each other, where it was like a safe environment for kids to like play independently with each other. So while I would never watch this movie again, it has some redeeming qualities, including an exceptional cast of children who did a great job and had a fantastic summer. Thanks so much for listening to my review of The Sandlot here at Submedia Reviews. Next time, I'll be reviewing the 1995 Disney Pixar classic, Toy Story. Peace out.
Thanks for listening to Sub Media Reviews. I hope you enjoyed our trip down memory lane just as much as I did. If you have any suggestions for movies or TV shows you'd like me to review next, or if you just want to share your thoughts on today's episode, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Pinterest at Sub Media Reviews and on SubMediaReviews.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And if you have a moment, please leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. Your feedback helps me improve the show and spread the word to new listeners. So until next time, peace out, home slices. Peace out.